This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Let's talk some baseball. Welcome to the High Hopes Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Fritz, for this episode. And today, we are, are lucky enough to be joined by Ben Harris of TheAthletic.com, which I am a, a subscriber and a guy who, who listens, uh, reads it every single day. So, Ben, uh, welcome to the podcast. And also, thank, thank you for all your work on The Athletic. Uh, I'm really enjoying it so far. Thanks so much, Jack. It's really a uh, really pleasure to be here. Yes, yeah, great. I'm loving it. We're glad uh, glad to have spring training underway, and we're pumping out some really good content that we're really proud of. Thanks, uh, thanks for reading. Yeah, you know, it's actually it's 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 nice to have smart, honest, like analytic driven journalism rather than like, hey, here's this story with my eyes telling me and there's nothing to back it up. I, I'm enjoying it. I'm glad that I'm glad that we're finally moving out of the Stone Age into an actual, you know, honest conversation about baseball. Thank you. Yeah, we really get the freedom to to do to do what interests us and what we think interests the fans. And you get a little more freedom with the medium when you can you can do the video and you can break down some video and some some analytics. And, and you know, we've got plenty on plenty on both sides for those who aren't completely read up on on the sabermetrics and those who are. So we're casting a casting a wide net. Yeah. So I want to take you back. the 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 date was December fifteenth of the, of twenty sixteen. And, and Freddie Galvis was traded. What, what was your reaction on that glorious day? Uh, my reaction was, uh, I won't say excitement, but a, a need to not see a guy like Galvis in the two-hole hitting at the top of the lineup uh, is something that signaled a, a push forward for this organization uh, with, the, with the hiring of Kapler is another thing that, gets, that goes down in that same column as, Really, a, a sea change and a and a move in the right direction, and it shouldn't be uh, it shouldn't be overstated or understated how important Freddie Galvis was to this team, especially when they were playing bad. He was the guy who would not be afraid to rip off a couple expletives uh, to the media and say, you know, this isn't this isn't us. This isn't how we should be playing. This isn't okay. We shouldn't normalize this. 
And that was really important. Uh, a, a lot of the people who come down hard on the sabermetrics and the analytics community will say, you know, you, you, there's no number for heart. You know, you can't, you can't quantify leadership in heart. And that's true. There's always a portion of the game that's going uh, to be outside of the grasp of analysis. And that's okay, and it should be that, it should be that way. But what he brought to the team in those transition years, especially right towards the end of the rebuild, was incredibly important. But what happens when you have a successful uh, rebuild up to this point, I'll say, where you've, we've cultivated talent and you have talent across the diamond, uh, is you're going to end up bumping some of those guys that, that carried you through that rebuild. And Freddie Galvis should be, uh, should be uh, maybe revered is too strong of a word, but he should, it, it, the Phillies fans and the Phillies organization should be thankful and should not uh, underestimate the what he brought to this club, even if Pete McCannon was maybe using him in the wrong way, and you know they're getting they're giving him a few more at bats than than he should have gotten. But he was an important part uh, of this organization to carry through those years. And for me, I could watch Freddie Galvis play defense all day. That's that is what I will miss most. I will miss uh, I will miss his slickness and his calmness on a ball going up the middle. But you know Crawford's right there, and he's not too far behind. Yeah, I mean, I hear you. He was he was important, sure, but I if he was in the two hole for another game, I was gonna lose my mind. And and every single day I wake up and I realize that the Phillies are a modern baseball team. And you've written a lot about this a lot. Just the 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 influx of analytics. They you know they brought in a a guy that that is just there to to teach the catching prospects or catchers how to frame a ball. They're they're, they're mm-hmm. trying to get every every stone unturned for this baseball team. They're finally a modern baseball team. I mean, it, they're they're finally there. They've moved on from the Stone Age, and I think getting rid of Freddie and moving on from Pete McCannon, who I think was holding back this team, uh, was some great moves. And now we're bringing the Kapler era. Do you have any early reactions from or early thoughts on the Kapler area? How how you think it's going? Uh, just any general spring takeaways? So I have not been down uh, to Clearwater yet. I'll be down there later in the spring, uh, so I can mostly talk from experience of what uh, my coworkers and colleagues have said from down there. It seems, uh, and from what he said, obviously, it seems uh, it's different. You know, from day one. Uh, having umpires behind the catchers and bullpens, having radar tracking these guys' pitches and bullpens, things like that. There are noticeable differences in, in workload, in, in managing players' workloads and their health. Uh, this is going to – we are going to see things that we have not seen before. As you said, this is, this is, ser- this is very much taking them into the new age uh, of baseball. And a lot of things are going to go – a lot of things will happen behind the scenes that – that uh, maybe weren't necessarily things that happened in the Pete McCannon era um, and things that I think are part of the reason why Clintac wanted to speed up, uh, speed up the rebuild in this fashion. And, and even though it added some expectations for how good they'll be, for how they'll be judged, um, I think it was the right move. And uh, things like player meetings that we've heard Kapler talk about, they're going to be integrating the quantitative analysis, uh, analysts in them uh, those are all going to be things that are going, going to uh, – they're going to have to learn about their players and they're going to have to learn how each individual uh, reacts to, to criticism and reacts to suggestions. And 
it's going to be interesting to me to see what these players take from things like those meetings. And from the get-go, Kapler has been about connecting with the players and things like using the umpires behind home plate and the radar. If the player wasn't comfortable with it, then they didn't use it. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. They didn't force everything on these players all at once. It's a, I think it's a little bit more new age idea of we have to cater to these players, uh, especially with the young team, and not necessarily just tell them, go out, do your work, come back in, and then go home at the end of the day. Yeah, and you know, we saw that with the alarm clock thing, where it was like, hey, you know, just come in when you want, <laughs> and yep. and like Pat Neshek and I think it was Tommy Hunter, they they just left practice one day because they got all their work done, and it was like, hey, you know, good. It seems like everything Kapler is instituting is 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 common sense, and it's for the for the young ball player. I don't think it would have worked on the 2011 Phillies with a team of veterans mm-hmm. that. I don't think they would have taken as kindly to what Kapler is preaching. But here's the thing is that even old school minds like Charlie Manuel have raved about Gabe Kapler and they they think he's smart. They think he's analyzing the team. Well, they, they like his, his ideas and having a guy like Rob Thompson there, I think is also super important. I think he's a, a super underrated part of the, of the off season because he ran Yankees training or spring training. So bringing in yep. him, bringing in him to go along with Kapler you know, they have an actual guy there that, that has run spring training before, so it's not Kapler by himself. They've brought in experienced guys all over the place. That they're, they're fostering an environment for a young team to thrive. And every single day, I just I just I am I'm more and more impressed with how this team's evolved. I think that diversity of thought and having a guy like Rob Thomas Thompson, uh geez, Rob Thomas, uh is huh. uh is important. Were you thinking about Carlos and, Santana when he said that? Yes, I got music on the brain, clearly. Um, I think uh, I think that diversity thought is important in uh, in all aspects of life. But if you're going to run a baseball team, if you're going to try and connect with these young players. You need it's not as I said going to be one size fits all. Maybe maybe some of the hitters are going to um, uh, gravitate more towards the hitting coach. He has a really interesting background himself, uh, uh, learning about. Uh, uh, the, the kinetics of hitting and the, and the kinetic chain and body movement and motion. And maybe some of them are going to gravitate more toward the intensity of Gabe Kapler, or maybe some of them are going to gravitate more toward the experience of a guy like Rick Kranitz. And they don't have a bunch of guys that are Gabe Kapler. They don't have Gabe Kapler. And then the pitching coach is the same and the hitting coach is the same. And the assistant hitting coach is the same. There's, there's a range of, of age and there's a range of diversity of thought and of background and of experience. You have Kapler who's got the front office and the player development experience. You've got the hitting coach who uh, has experience with the Cubs and the Astros and the Marlins when they had young players. Uh, Obviously two of those went on to win the world series in the last two years. So I think that diversity of thought is important and is a very, uh, is a very core analytic concept. And that is something that Matt Klintak wanted to wanted to bring in and get the ball rolling with uh, as soon as he could. And do you think that, because I've kind of had this thought for a while, that everyone's making a little bit too big a deal out of both position players and the starting rotation. Because if, you, if you've learned anything about you know the, the future of baseball and where baseball is moving towards, modern baseball teams don't want their starters getting to a, a lineup the third time. So everyone's talking about how, like, oh, well, who's going to be the fifth starter? 
I don't think the Phillies really care that much because I think they just want a guy they can get them five innings and then hand it over to the bullpen. And the bullpen on paper looks like a formidable force. I agree with you 100% on the bullpen. And I think they built it around uh, the idea that if they didn't go out and get a starter, they could they could mop up some extra innings that their starters may not be able to get through either because they didn't want them to get through that uh, to face those guys that third time or because they were struggling to get through the lineup even the second time and having that eighth man in the pen which it sounds like is what they're going to do should help there Uh, definitely they have some guys uh, that who who may not crack the lineup who uh, may not crack the 25 man excuse me who they could bring up guys like Jake Thompson maybe who could fill in in the pen for a couple weeks if they need to give some breathers or if there's an injury who can mop up some maybe slightly longer relief. Um, but we saw with Kapler and we saw with the Dodgers last year that they, I believe their pitchers face guys the third time through the order less than any other team. And usually the teams that are doing that are, are teams that have starters that are struggling and they had one of the best rotations in the game. And it, it they, this is definitely uh, a new page of the, we've turned a page uh, in the Phillies organization. This is a new way of thinking. I don't think there will be a, hard and fast rule that pitchers, even the back-end guys, can't face teams the, the third time. Uh, we know the trends. We know that hitters get better and better uh, the more and more times they face a, hit, a pitcher during the game, and it's not necessarily uh, related to the pitcher tiring. So uh, I think it, obviously Kapler is going to bring that notion with him here. Um, I'm sure it's something that Klintak is, is, is all too familiar with, and it'll be interesting to see how they implement this with, um, with, a, with a staff that's not as deep as they maybe would like it to be. I don't think it'll be a hard and fast rule, but uh, I think we could see some, some creative bullpen usage for sure. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, even the Dodgers, they were third or whatever in the rankings last year in, in batter innings, whatever. I forget what the stat was, but they were third. Mm-hmm. And that was with a guy like Clayton Kershaw, who was a guy that finishes most games he starts. So that just kind of gives you a little inside scoop in, into what the Phillies are kind of thinking, I think, and, and not letting their starters face a lineup for the, for the third time. I also feel the kind of same way about the outfield. Uh, you know, there's always talk about Aaron Altair or Nick Williams and which one's going to play a lot or Carlos Santana. How's this all going to work out? I kind of feel the same way about the outfield and position players as I do about the starters in the bullpen. The Dodgers, if you look at them, they always had just random guys playing and performing, and they would move guys all over the field like Kike Hernandez, Chris Taylor, just random guys filling in. I think Aaron Altair, Nick Williams, they're going to get there at bats. I think Reese Hoskins is going to get start, uh, starting time at first base. Carlos Santana is going to have some nights off. Do you, do you get the same sense with the, the lineup as well? I think there should be some lineup flux. They, they have earned the ability to do that with the depth uh, that they have. Now, preseason depth charts always look perfect, and uh, we've seen some of these guys. We've seen Odubel go down, not consistently, but we've seen him go down a couple times with injury. We've seen Altair struggle with that. Um, So I think there will be be, uh, the ability for these guys to get at-bats. I think, you know, injuries happen. We will see some guys go down. Uh, Altair has struggled with some of the soft tissue stuff, which isn't quite as... uh, which isn't quite as encouraging. 
But I think I think there will be at bats to go around. The question becomes if the goal is to to go out and trade one of those guys or even trade two of those guys, maybe um, are you giving them enough of a chance to to increase their value and to and to put them on display? And I think they they should get more or less uh, a, a fair shake. But the amount of teams that have been able to spread around. Uh, 350 or 400 plate appearances across four outfielders in the last couple decades is very small. Uh, uh, and, and a lot of those that have done it, it's, it's been kind of fluky because they've traded someone midseason. So uh, I think there will be playing time to go around. I think they will get creative in, uh, in I won't say platooning Altair and Williams, but in splitting the time between them and getting Herrera some rest you know, getting Hoskins a couple of days rest here and there. When they rest Santana, you can put all those three guys in the outfield and move Hoskins over to first base and keep him sharp over there. Um, I think the left side of the infield should stay, uh, or, or everyone but first base should stay pretty consistent. Now, if, if we're halfway through the year and Franco's struggling still and Scott Kingery is, is banging on the door, we could see it, we could see them have to make an interesting decision about whether or not to bring Kingry up and throw him to third base. But that's putting the car before the horse. I think they have the versatility, they have flexi- positional flexibility, and like you said, uh, the Dodgers did this incredibly well last year with with the versatility they had both in the outfield and the infield, and guys like Chris Taylor and, and Enrique Hernandez who could go out and and fill a need whenever they needed, uh, move around late in the innings, play some matchups. I think the Phillies should be in a position to do similar things this year. What do you think is going to happen with Kingery? Because, you know, everyone's like, oh, freaking out. Like, he should be in the opening day lineup. Obviously, that's not going to happen. And then the first day he can come up would be April 13th. Do you think they're going to bring him up right at that point? Do you think they're going to wait until June? Uh, Are they going to try to trade Cesar and wait even later to bring up Kingery? Do you think they're going to bring up Kingery and play him maybe in center, maybe in second, maybe at short, or maybe at third? What do you think – their plan is with Scott Kingery. It's an interesting question. Uh, you mentioned that being able to bring him up on, on April 13th and still save that, uh, still save that extra year of service time. I think because of the way the, the season has been stretched now uh, this season, you know, there's not, it, it's stating the obvious, but there's not a place for him at the moment. And I'm not sure, you know, you need him to get every day at bat. Uh, when he went up to triple a, some of the power numbers stayed, but some of the plate discipline numbers weren't as encouraging. Yep. Struck out a little bit more, and uh, there's going to be no there's no harm in, in in leaving him at AAA to begin the season. I think as as in as incredibly entertaining and captivating of a player uh, that he is, uh, it, it might be a hard sell for some people, but he's uh, he will 100% start the year in the minors, and. I'm not sure there's a benefit of bringing him up until you actually have a spot. I don't think, you know, platooning him at third base, uh, granted they're both right-handed, but but moving him, flipping him around with Franco at third base and not giving either of them consistent at-bats really does you any good. It doesn't give Franco any chance to find a rhythm. It doesn't give Kingry a chance to find a rhythm in, uh, when he starts his big league career. So I think you have to keep him down until – Either Franco forces you to do otherwise, or you find a trade partner for Cesar. And I think that they haven't traded Cesar yet shows that, granted the market's been been a little different this year, but shows that they do value how consistent he is. And Cesar Hernandez has been freakishly consistent, especially over his last two years. 
he is a, a roll out of bed and hit 290 with a 370 on base kind of guy, almost exactly. And uh, they they do value Cesar Hernandez, and they do value what he brings to this team, especially with his leadership. He's one of the longer tenured guys on the team now, and I don't think they're going to move on from him to move on from him because there will be a team, you know, maybe come maybe come the trade deadline that loses an infielder that needs a guy or uh, a team, whether it's next offseason, uh, you, you don't give up on a guy of that value just because you have another guy behind it. You don't just give him up for nothing. Right. There's got to be a reason behind it. And I think they could very well find that reason. I'm sure they're still listening on him. Um, they, would, they, have such, they have such a depth that, and such a stud behind them coming up in Kingery that, that they would be crazy not to. So for right now, I think he's going to uh, Kingery's going to going to get his hacks in AAA. He's going to you know be a leader down there. He's a fun guy to watch. The first time I went and saw him when he was called up to AAA last year, he made a, uh, a diving kind of layout catch over the shoulder in center field. He's just he's an electric player. We've seen we've seen him light up spring training now for the second year in a row. Uh, there's not a spot for him right now on the on the 25 man, but I don't think that uh, I don't think that time will be too far off when there is. Yeah, and I, th- I think I feel like the Phillies are saying, you know, I think I think Cesar Hernandez is one of the most underrated players in the entire sport, and I think they're trying to make sure that they're not getting ripped off in a Cesar Hernandez trade. Like Cesar Hernandez should be good enough to to headline a deal, but if if you're if you're trading for Chris Archer and you're you're a Tampa Bay Rays fan, it's like we got Cesar Hernandez. I just think mm-hmm. that they're they're waiting for a time when they get equal value for how good Cesar is and. How cheap he is. I mean, Cesar Hernandez is on one of the best deals in the sport, uh, and he's been freakishly consistent, like you said. I think they're waiting for proper value, and clearly they haven't gotten that yet. And, you know, with with Kingery, (laughs) just the other day, he's placing Luis Severino, who we all hope that that's what Sixto turns out to be. Uh, And he he works a 3-2 walk, which he struggled with at AAA, and hopefully that can bounce back up to where it was in AA. And then stole second base. The guy is just an electric player, and I'm sure you saw the Buster Only tweet yesterday or two days ago about uh, comparing him to Dustin Pedroia. And I honestly, I don't think that's too far off. I think Scott Kingery could be as good as Dustin Pedroia. Uh, I I did see the tweet. Um, Dustin Pedroia, he's a little removed from his, from his peak, obviously, that's as what happens when you're on the wrong side of 30. But he still had a phenomenal year last year. Um, he didn't. I think he was injured for some of it. Didn't didn't quite play a whole season. Um, but I think he. Uh, it's a lot to put on a guy. It Dustin is. Dustin Pedroia I mean, was. He's probably a, a Hall Dustin of Pedroia, Famer, right? Yeah, Dustin Pedroia. I, I, I would. It's possible. It's certainly possible. I would have to dig through the numbers a little more to say anything definitively, but he certainly, you know, he's been an MVP. I believe he was a rookie of the year. Got a couple rings. Um, that's a, that, th- those are some, th- that's, that's a good place to start. Certainly uh, in terms of, in terms of your hall of fame credentials. Uh, he was also, he, he was phenomenally consistent. And, you know, as, as much as we want, to see a guy like Kingery develop into a guy like that, I think before you look, you know, five, six, seven years down the line at how good Pedroia was, you've got to realize that Kingery is a guy who's going to come up. He, he may struggle. That's okay. He's got phenomenal basketball skills. That's going to stay with him. 
And I think he could be uh, an all-star, a, a perennial all-star type player. Whether he's going to end up being as good as Pedroia or not, there's plenty of time for that. Whether or not Kingery's going to be an MVP candidate, you know, we'll see. I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be comfortable saying I expect him to be as good as Dustin Pedroia. Come on. Dustin Pedroia is a stud. Come but on. I, I, I don't know. It, <laughs> Dustin, it, it's easy to get wrapped up in the hype, and I've, I've been guilty of it too. Uh, this city is, is very wrapped up in, in the incredible young talent across the board. And I think he'll be, I think he's incredibly exciting. I think he'll be, uh, I think he will really be an all around star. I think this city is going to absolutely fall in love with him. Uh, and I think he could be a perennial all star type player like Pedroia. But it, until we, until we get a little more of that at the big or any of it at the big league level, I'm not willing to say he'll be an MVP candidate. I mean, Pedro, I, if I remember correctly, Pedroia won one. Wasn't his first couple years? I mean, he must have been. Yeah, I think uh, it was like 20... 2010. Yeah, so he must have been. I don't know, 24 or 25, something along those lines. 23, maybe. Um, that's a that's high praise. You know, that's a lot. That's a lot to put on a guy. Um, I'm not sure I'd be. Uh, I, I won't put that type of guarantee on him, but he could be. He could 100% be in that kind of. That kind of Ian Kinsler type range, yeah. Uh, where where these these smaller guys that can really put the bat on the ball, and that you know that that plays that plays year in year out. Kinsler's a couple uh, uh, a couple time All Star for sure. I believe he won a Gold Glove, maybe even. That's a good mold for a guy like Kingery, and you know he he could be a Pedroia. He could be an MVP candidate. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to put on him for me at this point, but I think. I'm as excited about Scott Kingery as I am about any other prospect in this organization. Uh, I would say Sixto Sanchez included solely because of how much can go wrong with the starting pitching prospect, uh, especially one as young as he is. Mm, I love Sixto. Well, hold on. Before we move on, if, if, if Scott Kingery walks into Gabe Kapler's office and demands to wear the number 26, would you put him in the opening day lineup? <laughs> I'm sure if you ask the city, you might as well. They'd say to build a statue of him right then and there. It's uh, he's he, he everything that I've uh, that when I've spoke to him and everything I've heard about him, he seems like this guy. He's going to do whatever it takes to get on the field. He when he was at Arizona, he lied to his coach and said he played some outfield in his in his high school days because they didn't have an infield spot open and uh, and they needed someone in the outfield. And he'd run around and lay out in the outfield. He is a guy that this city, I, I very much believe, is going to love from the get-go. And he may not, uh, he may not be as jacked as Chase Utley. We may not get those gifts of him shirtless fielding balls uh, before games. But uh, in no time, you're gonna have you're gonna have people clamoring for for his name in the lineup. Yeah, and he's just a he's just a ball player. Like you watch him, and you know we're in this analytic-driven game. But he is a throwback baseball player that also is is, is really good analytics wise. I mean, if you're looking at everything he does on the field, uh, batting, he is just a, an absolute gamer, and all the old head baseball fans are gonna really appreciate Scott Kingery uh, coming through the ranks. Um, are you are you buying at all uh, what Franco is selling so far at the plate? We've seen some we've seen some at bats where he's still stepping out towards third base, and it, it drives me insane. But there is times when he's stepping straight towards the pitcher, and it seems like one at bat he's doing that, and then he goes back to his old ways. 
Are you buying at all what Franco's selling? Or are you still like, well, it's spring training Franco, so I just assume he's really good and then won't bring it north? <laughs> it's it, it's interesting. The the idea of change is always going to be better is one that we've somewhat adopted in the in the baseball uh, in the baseball lexicon. And you know, we we know what swing changes have meant now, and they often go with these guys trying to hit more balls in the air, trying to pull the ball more. And there's this connotation that it's always going to be a positive. But we saw last year. He came into camp last year and said, I didn't really have an approach in, in 2016, and now I'm going to have an approach. And we didn't see any of that manifest itself last year. So uh, I think, you know, his third hitting coach in three years for him, that's a lot. That's, uh, that's a lot of turnover. That's a lot of inconsistency in the coaching staff. Uh, I think it'll be seeing what um, – John Malley, I believe I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Malley or it's Malley or Maley. Yeah, one of those uh, what he'll what he'll bring with his experience with guys uh, like uh, Altuve and, and Springer and Correa and uh, Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryan and Javi Baez. Uh, maybe you know, maybe it's third times the charm. Maybe maybe he needed a new set of or a newer set of eyes on him. But uh, I always hesitate to read too much into. Spring training, and, and you mentioned he sometimes looks like he's reverting back to the old stance. They could be purposely giving, you know, maybe giving him the feel of of how different it feels, and getting getting that ingrained into his mind in, in some live reps, and uh, and and using that as a as a teaching moment. But it's it, I'm not. I'm not sure that uh, that I'm guaranteeing a change is uh, a change is imminent, and that any change to a stance or to an approach is going to immediately manifest itself, because uh, because you know these guys are these guys are complicated. They're they're humans. They they have to adapt. They have to change. I'm sure he understands the pressure of the situation he's in. So uh, and we see him doing things like spraying the ball around the field, and then one at bat we'll see some flails. Uh, I'm not ready. I'm certainly not ready to say he's out of it. He's out of the, 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 the tank, but I think, I think you've got to, you give him the year, maybe you give him the half year, depending on how bad it is. Uh, but you, you owe it to him to give him this and it'll be that, that will be the story in the way that last year when Tommy Joseph was struggling uh, and everyone was clamoring to bring, to bring up Hoskins. This will be that same scenario if if we see Franco putting up the type of numbers that he did again, and I think there it, there will be a rightful uh, that crowd will be right to be to be doing so. Do you have any favorites for the back end of the rotation right now? I mean, it's it's obviously down to what Pavetta, uh, Hutchinson. Uh, uh, who the heck am I? Who who am I forget? Oh, Lively. Lively, who's pitched yeah. pretty well. Do you do you have any favorites out of that crew? Anyone that you're you're gunning for? Hopefully, getting a, a four or five spot. I think Pavetta. You can. Uh, I expect Pavetta to be in the rotation. I think he has stuff that you can't teach. He throws a ball, uh, a, a high spin fastball that he throws. Great velocity. Uh, he throws some great off speed stuff, and we've seen when it all comes together. Uh, he pitched on. I want to say it was Sunday, and uh, struck out. I think Brandon Drury of the of the Yankees. And it was a, a, a harbinger of how good he could be. Yep. And it was this, you know, hard fastball 
uh, biting curveball and slider that that if he puts it all together and can command those, he is going to be a dangerous pitcher. Um, he improved his his curveball. He tweaked and, and added a lot more drop to it by the end of last year. It'll be interesting to see whether that carries over. Um, as for the fifth spot, um, Hutchinson's an interesting guy, uh, as is Ben Lively. Ben Lively's numbers last year were really solid, and the the number the the word people always always use to talk about him is a bulldog. You know, he's intense. He's fiery. It's he's a nice focused. word for a guy that throws 87. I guess that's what you can do for, for, for yeah. a guy like that. Yes, he, he doesn't strike anybody out, but he works the count. He works batters. He, he, can, hit his, he can hit his spots for the, for the large part. Um, I think he'll be an interesting guy. And Zach Eflin's another guy. He's his you know, mid-90s sinker with movement, and I'm talking movement. Pete McCannon uh, would call it a bowling ball last year, and I think that was a great analogy. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a matter of whether or not he can stay healthy. He went down he, last year. The, the story was he, his knees are clean for the first time. Uh, he's got healthy knees for the first time in his baseball career, essentially, and he had some shoulder issues. seemed like he was trying to learn, trying to learn how to, to work through his uh, motion again and, and and not have to try to take the try to compensate for the pain in his knees, and maybe that maybe he changed some things up that showed up in his shoulder. Um, so he's another guy. My guess right now would be if they don't go out and get another starter, um, it's down to Lively and maybe Hutchinson. Uh, water gun to my head, maybe Ben Lively feels like the feels like the way to go. I think he's looked all right this spring. Yeah. Um, but that's where my head's at. And Lively's a guy who we talked about it earlier. I think he'll be get he'll be able to get you those five innings that we look for. I think once he faces a lineup for the third time, his, his the averages against him just skyrocket. But the first yeah. two times through a lineup, he's actually okay because he has the deceptive fastball. Because I, I was reading an Eno Saris article I think last year on Fangraphs about Ben Lively, and he's one of the pitchers that gets his elbow out in front of his in front of his arm, but so the, uh-huh. it looks like a slingshot when it comes out. So even though it's eighty eight. It really looks like 92, 93, and it takes a couple of uh, of times for Alon to adjust to that. So Lively, for me, is a guy that can get me five innings and, and hopefully turn it over to that bullpen. On paper, the Phillies' bullpen is looking to be a force, and you wrote about Adam Morgan the other day. How confused are you by Adam Morgan actually being good now? So uh, it was a really interesting progression to see Adam Morgan last year from when he when we spoke with him after he was sent down in April, uh, about a week and a half into the season, he looked uh, not distraught, but he was—he looked like he had some—he had some thinking that he needed to do. And he—he uh, he spoke with Jim Salisbury about how, uh, you, you know, you have three days to when you get sent down to report to minor league camp, and he told the Phillies he was going to need all three days uh, to decide, and, and decided not to quit midway through the season, and that if he was going to make any uh, uh, significant. Uh, change like that he was going to do at the end of the year and some helpful tweaks from uh, from Rick Kranis and Bob McClure and a new slider grip just unlocked an entirely different Adam Morgan we've seen lots of pitchers go from the rotation to the bullpen whether it's because of injury or because they don't have the 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 depth of their arsenal to last as you were saying two or three times through the order and Morgan lost his slider uh, at the beginning of the year, it was not moving at all. It was flat. It was inviting. It was it was not diving. It wasn't cutting. 
and he went down to the minors, changed his grip up, um, uh, started throwing with a different grip. And the, the big change that one of the big changes in addition to the grip that I focused on in that piece was the Phillies coaching staff uh, uh, approached him about moving to the third base side of the rubber instead of the first base side. And when he was on the first base side, all of his pitches, especially that slider, were starting at the left-handers. And the left-handers could sit on it and say, all right, either this is going to hit me or it's going to fall right into the strike zone and I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a hack at it. And that works for some people, but it, it wasn't what, uh, what fit Morgan's repertoire best. And he moved to that third base side, and all of a sudden his sliders are starting right down the middle, and now they're cutting off the plate. And lefties were, were – uh, uh, they silenced lefties. They, lefties were, were, I think, four for – trying to remember the number four for 37 over the last couple months against Morgan slider, all four hits were singles with 20 something strikeouts. I mean, he became a pitcher that you can go count on to, to put lefty to send lefties back to the dugout. And it was night and day and the velocity absolutely plays, plays up and the slider plays up with, you know, he's throwing 95 miles an hour. Now that was not the Adam Morgan that we knew when he came back from the shoulder. It's not my Adam Morgan. 14. He, uh, yeah, he, uh, that's, uh, it's a different pitcher and he, and he's it's an exciting guy to have in the bullpen right now. If he can carry this over, it's, uh, it's going to be, I think he's going to be a really devastating left-handed weapon for them. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know, I don't want to completely rule out PEDs, but the fact that he was throwing 91 and then jumped to 97, he, he goes on to the minors and all of a sudden he's back up here. I'm so confused by Adam Morgan, but I'm so glad he's here because they needed a good lefty out of the bullpen. I know you wrote about Hobie Milner, uh, and he had one of the biggest, what, FIP and ERA differentials in, in the entire sport last year? Yeah, so uh, my colleague Megan Montemiro actually wrote that piece. But, but yeah, so he, um, he essentially couldn't handle right-handed hitters, period. They were, his splits were, uh, were, were really tough, and he was good against lefties, but the righties were, were where he really struggled. And that puts limitations on how much you can use a guy if you're trying to avoid all, all manner of right-handed hitters. But yeah, so he his uh, his the, the gap between his ERA and his FIP, uh, which you can if your FIP is much higher, it's a it's a potential uh, pointer towards maybe you were getting getting some batted ball luck or things like that. Yep. Uh, he had the second biggest in the game last year. If you're looking at guys who threw 30 innings, and it was it was a huge margin. And and what what Megan wrote in her piece was that. Uh, he has a new curveball grip again, new breaking ball grip, just like Morgan. And uh, he, it, it's it's sharper. It bites a little bit more, um, cocks his wrist a little bit more, and it's something that he feels can go uh, it can go hand in hand with how he faces right-handers and give him another weapon there instead of just kind of a, a show me breaking ball. So that's another guy. That's a rule five guy. You know, that's a scrap heap kind of guy where you you can find some value in him. Uh, with uh, without having to give anything up. Agreed. Uh, final thing before I let you get out of here. Uh, let's talk about Aaron Nola because it seems like when he was coming out, right, he had three quality pitches. But even throughout some of the, the time he's been in the big, big leagues, the changeup hasn't been that great. But as we saw a couple of days ago with the five strikeout, the changeup looks like it's completely back. And it's just going to unlock, unlock another level to Aaron Nola. Do you think Aaron Nola is going to take another step forward in 20, 2018? Boy, it's hard to figure out where that step would be. I mean, right. 
The, the curveball got so much better last year. Uh, the command stayed phenomenal. That changeup was great. I wrote a lot about him this offseason. He used that changeup behind in the count to guys. So all of a sudden, even when you're in a hole, you've got this thing that looks like a fastball, and then it drops off the table. That's a dangerous weapon. And I think one of the he had a couple really impressive games last year. Um, he, had, he had about two and a half months in a row of them. But a couple games that stuck out in my mind uh, were a game against the Brewers where he kept guys, right-handers and left-handers, off balance with his changeup. And then a game against the Mets where I believe it was in that, in that streak of, of Jonas Cespedes just tearing the Phillies apart. And Nola was throwing fastballs up in his kitchen and pushing him off the plate and then, and then working him outside. And that, to me, as much as it is encouraging to see the changeup develop, the curveball develop, uh, to see him be willing to go inside on a guy who's been crushing his team and go kind of go up there with no fear. Uh, we asked him after the game if he if he remembered seeing Cespedes stare back at him after that after that pitch, and he essentially said yeah, and and that was it. You know, he didn't care, didn't phase him. He's uh, he's a, he he doesn't put out a, his exterior is not one of a of a of a tough guy of a of an extremely macho guy. He's a quiet guy. He goes about his business. Uh, he's a soft talker. He he's a soft talker, but a hard thrower. He throws a fastball with movement that is that is that is built for Twitter. I mean, the gifts that you, that that we'll see popping up of him throughout the season, uh, and that movement on that on on that two seamer and that movement on that curveball are just phenomenal. Uh, it's hard to know where that next step would be. Uh, he's already up near the top of the league in terms of striking guys out. He minimizes the walks. Uh, all you can ask for is him to keep to keep this level of success and keep it consistent. And as he gets older, he'll learn more. Uh, he's still incredibly young. He'll learn more. He'll he'll accrue more service time. He'll get to pick the brains of some veterans. And soon enough, he'll be that veteran that guys are that guys are leaning on for advice and for suggestions. And I think he, uh, I think he has a chance to be again very, very solid for the Phillies this year, and and bordering on that, that ace potential. You know, depending on how you quantify that. And for me, I think the discussion is more or less pointless. He's the best pitcher on the team, no question. He's one of the handful of ten or fifteen, twenty best pitchers and fifteen best pitchers in baseball. Uh, and no label will, will take away just how will diminish from how good he is. Yeah, and his to his growth if he he's already great at it now but just continuing to learn how to pitch backwards you mentioned the change up in a 2-1 count that is so important that is a hitter's count that is a that is a hitter sitting dead red waiting for that fastball and he just drops in a change up and they roll over he is for for a former pitcher watching Aaron Nola is 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 a treat the guy is the guy is going to be tremendous this year and hopefully I think he's still underrated. Like I think he's still underrated here, just how good he is. I think he's underrated nationally. Hopefully this year we see some of that national buzz pop up. We get an all-star appearance. And really, I don't think it's out of the question for him to be in the Cy Young conversation come September. I don't think it's that much of a stretch either. Uh, as you said, it is, it is artwork to watch Aaron Nola pitch. It is truly a pleasure and uh, with with the the health scares seemingly behind him from 2016, he's made some tweaks, uh, made some adjustments. Uh, he's staying over the rubber a little bit longer, and you know maybe he inches up towards that 
towards that 200 inning mark. You know, 200 innings isn't what it used to be. It's not something you have to have to to be a quote unquote ace slash successful pitcher. Uh, and we'll see how they how they handle guys the third time through the order this year. But I, I think it would not be a stretch if we see him carry what uh, carry over what he learned from last year and improve in any in any uh, in any one facet of his game that that he could be mentioned in, in that Cy Young uh, in that Cy Young discussion this year and, and in the years coming. I agree. Wait, hold on. Last thing. I promise. This is the last thing. Uh, any chance? <laughs> any chance Santana leads off at all this year? I know you wrote about that with uh, your Franco piece. Uh, just what Santana can teach Franco, and I thought it was mm-hmm. re- really interesting the the O swing percentage, and yeah. he's been the one of the most consistent hitters in baseball and getting a count to one O rather than O one. That's important for a leadoff hitter, and he's got the pop, which is which is important for a leadoff hitter as well. Can you see any leadoff Santana, or do you think it's going to be Cesar and then Santana pretty much locked in that two hole? Uh, I think it's going to be Cesar. I really think. You, I think, it, while you could put Santana in that leadoff spot, uh, where does where does Cesar go? You know, if you hit, if you say you want to hit Cesar too, yeah, but it's important to have some pop in the two hole as well. Yep. A combination of how many at bats versus getting getting uh, getting up to the plate with guys on base. So while you could put Santana in the one hole, I think, you know, I think it would maybe be overthinking it a little bit to put him there as long as you've got Cesar there. I think he goes in that one hole. I think uh, I'm interested to see whether Santana hits two or four. I think there's a good argument both ways. I think maybe early in the season he hits up in the two hole. Um, But I could also see Hoskins up in the two hole. That's a guy who's going to set the table uh, just like Santana. And uh, it it feels like Herrera is probably the likeliest bet for a three-hole guy. While he doesn't have extraordinary home run power, He's got great extra base power. He's going to come up uh, uh, with two guys great on base in front of him and have one guy, either a Santana or a Hoskins, behind him uh, in scoring position a lot of the time. We saw him go on that stretch of hitting doubles last year. Uh, so it, it'll be interesting to me to see whether or not Santana or Hoskins ends up in that two-hole. My guess, my guess right now would be that they, I guess, put – Santana there to begin the season and let Hoskins sit in that four hole um, and then keep the power guys, the, the more power guys, uh, Williams and some Altair behind him and, Al- and Alfaro and then keep Crawford down there in the eighth spot. I don't think there's any reason to move him up. Let him let it take a little bit of pressure off him. Guys won't game plan quite nearly as intensely uh, against him and, you know, let him, let him get his bearings. So that would, that would be my guess. For, for a starting lineup, Santana in the two, Hoskins in the four. Yeah, that's what I would do as well. And for as much as I can't believe we went the whole podcast without even mentioning Reese Hoskins. For as much of a <laughs> ma- for a, for as much of a master at his craft as Aaron Nola is, Reese Hoskins is the is the exact same way at the plate. I mean, just the other day he works a count to three two and then pops a homer. The guy, we're just it's it's just a treat that this lineup on a night in night out basis is going to give us something to watch. We're not bad at we're not seeing like Cam Rupp in the eight spot. Or Peter Borges, like one through eight, they have a really fun modern day lineup that it's going to give us something to watch on a night in, night out basis. And just thank God we're there because it was a long time since 2011, but we're finally back. It was. You, you mentioned the the two strike homer. I know both his homers, Hoskins two strike homers. Uh, sorry, both his homers this spring have been two strike homers. Uh, I looked it up last year. 
Uh, only one player in baseball hit more of their homers, uh, a higher percentage of their homers with two strikes. He is, uh, he, he is really impressive. I, I dug into a number of at-bats that he had earlier this offseason uh, and broke them down pitch by pitch. He is, a, he is playing uh, uh, beyond his age. Not that, the, not that the homers can be something to expect uh, in the way that he hit them last year, but he controls the strike zone and dictates and gets better as he gets, uh, gets deeper into counts. He learns more. He's cerebral. He thinks uh, uh, about his approach. He, he learns as the count gets deeper. He, he takes things into account, and he, he, should be, he should be very fun to watch this year. Agreed. Ben Harris, thank you for coming on the High Hopes podcast. Read him on theathletic.com. Ben, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Jack. I appreciate it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.